Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Syntac Podcast. Today I'm here with Carly Gundy, Corinne Schlachter, and Phil Anderson, and we're here to review the book Dataclism. This is Corinne and Carly's first time on the pod, so welcome, guys. Hi. Hi. Do you want to introduce yourselves at all? Sure. Um, I'm Corinne, and I work with everyone here, and I'm a data scientist, so I have a lot to say about this book. Cool. <laughs> Great. Um, I'm Carly. I also work with everyone here, and um, I also am a well data analyst. But I also studied sociology and stats in college, so I have a lot to say about sociology as well. So Carly is our expert. Phil, welcome back. Hey, thank you, Ethan. Very, very excited to be officially a recurring guest on the Syntax Project podcast. It's a prestigious post, Phil. Prestigious post. Okay. <laughs> Um, so we've all read the book separately, and we've tried not to talk too much about it. In planning for this podcast, obviously, we had to talk a little about how we were going to discuss the book. But in general, we haven't shared our opinions or takeaways, so this podcast is supposed to be our first conversation. I'd like to start with a brief summary of what Dataclism is about. Um, so, Phil, would you be willing to give us a quick rundown? Uh, sure. So, so Dataclism was was published in 2014, uh, so that's four years ago at this point, uh, by a guy named Christian Rudder. Uh, and Christian Rudder is pretty interesting. He's a co-founder of a company called OkCupid, which is one of the earlier uh, dating websites. Um, and one interesting note about him is that he actually is in like a semi-notable indie band um, that I have not listened to, but I thought that was interesting. Um, but he basically puts on the hat of a social scientist or like social science researcher uh, and tries to quantify different things like about American society, specifically around uh, dating. And he covers other stuff as well, but that's probably the, the most interesting content in the book. And his primary uh, data source for all of this is the OkCupid website logs or website uh, user data. Um, and so it's a pretty unique data set that, that gives him a lot of a lot of unique insight as well. Uh, and he breaks the book down into, into three main sections. Um, a is things that bring us together. Uh, B is things that pull us apart. And then C is things that make us who we are. And so he'll explore all of those with data. Nice. Sounds good. Um, so I think maybe the simplest way to go through this book before we do pros and cons, like or dislike, is to just skim through the parts and the chapters. So the book begins with what brings us together, like Phil said. Um, but even before that, we have the introduction in which Rudder talks a little bit about the differences between, uh, well, and the similarities between traditional behavioral sciences and data science. So Carly, I think you said you have some thoughts on this bit? Um, yeah, well, I guess I don't want to like evaluate it too much, but he does kind of start off just showing some examples of um, some graphs that show um, basically how men wait, rate women and how women rate men and how um, there's a certain... Um, differences that men tend to find women more attractive than men find women and this is just kind of an example to show how um, data science can um, or just having a, a quanti um, quantified version of it will show certain social trends and so then he kind of goes in to explain why he thinks that um, he is kind of in a position to illuminate these like trends that have not yet been seen um, which I think he kind of like minimalizes behavioral sciences a little when he says like that 
data science has the ability to do so much more than behavioral sciences ever could and kind of gives the example that when you're studying certain social sciences, you usually limit it to a specific population, in most cases like a college or um, a, an easily ex- accessible group. Um, but I think he kind of like reduces that a little and doesn't really go into the fact that those sciences are very robust and could control for all of that. And um, I think the important distinction between like the social sciences and data science is that the social sciences are really more about like conceptualizing things, like describing and ex- explaining them, where you really have to go and interview and talk to people and understand why they're behaving a certain way. But then the purpose of data science is um, recognizing patterns and then ultimately predict, um, building predictions. And so I think that distinction was important for me because he kind of doesn't really give enough merits to the social sciences, I think. And um, I, I think there's a lot of potential here to kind of uncover um, more of what online dating is like, which there hasn't been a lot of research on so far. Um, but he kind of takes off a, takes on a lot by wanting to basically explain dating in total, which a lot of people have already done. So anyway, that was my opinion on the introduction. But I just wanted to kind of highlight what some of the main differences are from the social sciences and data science from my perspective. Yeah. I, I have to say, this was the first of many times in the book when I felt like um, the findings of the book were being hyped up by the publisher, or or Rudder was being encouraged by the publisher to hype up the findings and their, like, I guess, validity and, like, um, how how reasonable it is to extrapolate those to the general population. Because this whole chapter, in some sense, was like justifying why we should care about what he's found. And I found myself like interested in what he had found for the very sake of it. But I don't think it's very explanatory. I think he has a lot of data and he had to guess at the reasoning, just like you said, the difference between social science and data science. Um, and in this chapter, he almost, well, I mean, it's not a chapter. In the introduction, he tries to sort of prove to you that like this is a thing we should be doing. And we should just be able to infer the meaning from this alone. And I thought that was a bit of a stretch. Yeah, I would say, like, one of the things that, to kind of thinking about what Carly said, like, one of the things that I've noticed a lot is, and, and as a data scientist, um, I guess I guess I can say this, is, like, there, there is kind of, like, a trivialization of more traditional branches of research that take place by the data scientist like, community. It's not always the case, especially because a lot of people in the data science community came from more traditional research roles. Uh, but it's important to point out that, like, Christian is not a researcher, um, I actually don't think he has any sort of like graduate level training. This is so good. We're on first name basis with this guy, just like we were with the guy who wrote <laughs> Sapiens. <laughs> You've all, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. But I mean, Christian, like, I mean, he makes some valid points in that, like, um, just having access to this data does allow him to really like concretely get at things that social scientists have maybe been uh, kind of getting at with like less, less. I guess, voluminous data sets um, in the past. Um, But I don't think it's fair for him to say, like, okay, like, what I've done, or at least allude to the idea that, like, what he's done is is somehow, like, superseding what's been done by these other areas of research. Because it's like, okay, like, you have almost exclusive access to this data set. Um, You know, what are your, like, wins above replacement player? Like, if we took these social scientists that you're, like, borderline maligning and, like, gave them access to what you have, like maybe maybe we would see something uh, even more interesting than what he's come up with. 
Right. And I think sometimes he's even like surprised by the findings and yeah. which like people <laughs> yeah. have researched before and are very easily explained. I feel like if he had done a little more research on his part, what would have been really interesting is given these like trends and things that we already know about like how men and women behave and how people of different races behave, like seeing if it's different in the online world and how it's different versus just saying these are things we see. Yeah. It, it, it is good in some ways. I mean, because he doesn't have necessarily some of the burdens that come with doing research. And that if he did, like, this book would be dramatically shorter. Because in the in the amount of time that it took him to put together, like, 300 pages, like, if you're doing, like, all these statistical tests and getting things, like, very, very like, comprehensively reviewed, we were, really wouldn't have a book to talk about. So, I mean, there, there are some positives that come of it to try to take, like, a balanced view. I think I think there's a lot of positives. I mean, I will say like I'm I'm very sympathetic to the social sciences and I'm very interested in them myself, but I do think that they suffer from a problem that he does point out that like it's it's very difficult to overcome that so many of the studies that have been done are done on a a pretty homogenous group of people. And also there's the selection effect of like you can't measure people who don't want to be measured. And the thing about having something like a dating site that you have the data from, like everybody is in that data set. If you're on the dating site, obviously there's a selection bias of who's on the dating site, but it's a different selection bias. And I think having this this big data set is very valuable. Um, I'm willing to like, I mean, I I think he may overhype it, I guess, but I in general am actually quite interested by this approach to what has been studied in the past by social science. I think that together, as, as I've seen before, like, the idea of big data is like best used when combined with other more traditional research techniques, and I think that this book kind of proves that out in some way. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, in that case, let's just jump right in. Um, so the the first chapter is about uh, well, it's called Wooderson's Law, and it's about how um, basically men and women are attracted to each other at different ages so uh men in general rate the most attractive women to be the ones that are around 20 years old regardless of the men's age and women rate men pretty close to their own age as most attractive so you have this this total mismatch in uh mating preferences basically but when you actually look at messaging habits men typically message a more socially acceptable age of women so there, there's a lot in here. There's a lot of charts. This is where Rudder starts throwing around all his charts because he actually has the book printed in two colors, which I thought was awesome. He has it in uh, red and black ink so he can do real graphs, which is pretty cool. Didn't even know that was possible. It's <laughs> no, kind of amazing. You never see that, right? That was pretty smart. Anyway, what do you guys think? I would say it was a rocky start to a book for me. It was basically yeah. like... It basically got thrown into this book and being like, well... You're over 20 years old, so good luck out there. Um, <laughs> it's just how I kind of interpreted it. And it was, I mean, I don't know. I thought it was, I guess, interesting. But then again, I feel like at the same time, you kind of already know that there's like this like prime age where, I don't know, you're going to be like the most attractive. So Yeah, I agree that that's what the book is telling us but actually I don't think that's necessarily what the data is saying because um, basically yeah like um, Ethan said um, they're rating young women um, as most attractive but when it actually comes to messaging habits that's more in an acceptable age range and then I'd be curious even to see if there's a difference specifically for going on dates if it's like 
that would be even closer in age of when people actually go on dates. And also it bothered me, sorry, <laughs> but it bothered me that he was only showing like men that message women and not trends on like women that, women that message men. And I don't know if he's just making the assumption that it's usually the guy that messages the, the woman and not the other way around, but I think it would have been interesting to see what those trends look like as well. Um, just to kind of balance it out and like since he has all this data just showing what it is and not just because I do think he kind of focuses a lot on like what men think of women and what men find attractive and I would have been interested in seeing the other perspective as well did he did he not address why he looks at men messaging women because I so I just started modern romance so I might actually be mixing this up because I know in modern romance Aziz Ansari addresses that he's going to to like take the discussion from uh, the point of view of men messaging first on dating apps because the he he has some data about it but they do such an overwhelmingly large majority of the time that it's hard to actually look at the other data so I don't remember if Rudder actually looks at it in the book but that was kind of my assumption maybe he does I thought he did make that assumption that it's like more common that um, guys will like reach out but I don't think he said that that was I don't think he said that that's why he only looked at it one way. Yeah, this, this like, actually, this discussion reminds me of, like, a number of the things, like, in the first part of the book, when it became, like, clear, like, what it was going to be, like, generally about. And he starts off with, like, like that, that like, image of the, of the line where it's, like, as guys get older, like, there's one age they find attractive, and it's, like, 21. And as women get older, you know, it's, like, a more reasonable... Uh, interest level of, of ages of men and it was it was interesting because like that's kind of like his blockbuster start to the whole thing is like that picture and there's like a couple of like really critical things missing from this and I think when he gives his like discussion about the difference between behavioral sciences and, and his version of data science in 2014 that like there were no like actual uh, hard metrics given on any of that stuff as far as like what was your actual like sample size because um, that was something that like would have been like for me like a bare minimum of things to see so like right off the bat like he's got like a semi-interesting graph but a um it didn't tell me anything like new um like i feel like like he expects it to be this like really big thing and it's like well i mean everybody kind of has like an intuition about that um that that's how it would go and then there's no like actual uh data like as far as like more rigorous things that i would expect to see to actually back any of it up yeah, I kind of wish he went into more, like, the methodology of, like, how he actually got this. Like, how he sat there and, like, determined that, oh, this is, like, the age that they want, even though they don't really act on it. Yeah. It's like, how did you how did you come to that conclusion that, that guys find 21-year-olds most attractive? We, we were trying to figure that out, how the rating system works. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. But I think, I mean, it must have been something of, like, yeah, rating certain people, and then he took that rating and looked at the average age. But I will say, I don't want to jump ahead, but this data is only limited to white people, um, which is a yeah. huge problem, because he doesn't even mention it in the first chapter. He only mentions it a couple chapters later, which I think is crucial to know if only white people behave yeah. this way. But yeah. we can talk about that later. <laughs> the other thing I do want to mention, though, before we move on, is that in the, uh, it's not the epilogue, but it's, maybe it's the epilogue, I don't know. It's like he has a, a final word in the book. 
about how he doesn't have any metrics on any of the data, basically. Um, and he talks about how he, he thought that you basically couldn't publish a book with all statistics info. And that's like, I mean, maybe we would read it, right? Because we work in this industry. But he's probably right that other people wouldn't read yeah. it. My, my angle on that is I would love to have seen his methodology like in an appendix on the website or something. But so far as I know, we're never going to find out how he did some of these measurements. I, I do think he's being a little sneaky sometimes with the data. And that's why, like, I get that people wouldn't want to read about it but to be taken seriously as a researcher i feel like you have to show your graphs and your sample size and yeah. stuff at least in the appendix well and there was there was one thing and i really could like after i saw this in the beginning of the book like i couldn't get over it um and I, know, I know ethan's not gonna like this but he basically has this rating data and he has like it's like a it's like a categorical bar chart and it's got like ratings values one two three four and five and it's got like the different heights and then he like fits a curve over it and he has like a little legend that says symmetric beta distribution. And like as as someone with like quite a bit of statistics training at this point, like the beta distribution does not include those values. Like it's only bounded on zero to one. And this is like like very nerdy. And like the average reader would probably not like pick up on this. But for me, it like totally like called into question like everything that I saw after that. Because the guy just like put a distribution on the paper and it that's not the distribution that he was saying that it was. Um, I think this is dumb. I've already <laughs> argued with him about this. Because I, it doesn't make any sense. Like, for, yeah. the, for the average reader... I mean, reader, I guess I just wonder why even bring it up if it's... I kind of agree. If you're not going to say a little more details, then why say that it's beta distribution? Because the people who know enough to know what it is probably are going to be like Phil. But <laughs> we, can't all, we can't all be such big nerds. Yeah, like, most, most people wouldn't care. I only bring it up because, like, uh, kind of like what Carly mentioned, like... I think he is being kind of sneaky, and I do wonder, like, if maybe he's just not providing stuff because, like, he doesn't know what to provide, or, like, it's just simply not there. Because there's a number of things that we can discuss later on where it's, like, um, I, I really wonder if, like, he's seeing something legitimate or if it's just noise. Um, and I think that actually that actually comes up a little bit in the men, or the women preferring different ages of men, where there's, like, a number, there's, like, a little bit of variance in in the ages and I was like I was wondering like just what the sample size was on some of these things it's probably not very big when you get to the higher ages all right well let's let's move along if we spend uh 15 <laughs> minutes per chapter we will be done in uh, I don't know 10 hours so um okay so chapter two is called death by a thousand mess like m-e-h-s like mess um so I think the main point that he drives home in this chapter is that People who are more uh, polarizing in their appearance actually get more messages than people yeah. who are just in some way like averagely attractive. And so he brings up like maybe very sporty or very gothy looking people. They get a lot of high attractiveness ratings and a lot of low attractiveness ratings. But that's better than getting a lot of middling ratings in terms of getting messages. Because the people that rate you very highly are the ones that eventually message you. So he, he says basically like, be interesting and different even if it turns off some people it's better to find some other people that would be interested however <laughs> it's only based on women <laughs> he doesn't That's actually look again. at, yeah. at yeah. what women yeah. think of men and that bothered me again <laughs> but i do yeah. think that's an interesting phenomenon yeah, the, the unstated assumption, I guess, is that there aren't enough messages being sent in the other direction, but that's pretty frustrating because, I mean, I don't know. It would be interesting to read. It's it's interesting to read this, but it would be interesting for it to be symmetric. Yeah, and then beyond just attractiveness, I, like, 
I know this is a lot harder to evaluate, but I think this would be extremely interesting and kind of more challenging as a data science, but not just looking at attractiveness, but also like what's in a person's bio content. Because I think you have to write a little bit about yourself. And so if there are, because he does some text analysis later on to see if there are certain like polarizing things that only certain people would find interesting. And if that also kind of relates to messaging or like, because he kind of is saying that it's all based on attractiveness, which I don't think it is. But um, I think that piece was kind of missing for me as well. Yeah, this, this reminded me of, of two things. One was a, a line from a rap song which said, if you don't have a hater, you're not doing it right. Uh, and I thought that was kind of interesting because this, this kind of alludes to that. Um, the other thing was, was a story from like one of my friends um, who uh, basically went, went through the process of shaving his head. And he actually said that like the next day after he did this, he went into work. And all these women who before never would have talked to him, all of a sudden were talking to him. And then all these people who before he did talk to were suddenly not talking to him. And it's like, I mean, being, being bald is like a pretty polarizing look, as I can attest to. <laughs> and so I thought that was like, this, this for me was pretty interesting to actually have some data on this. Because like, um, and, and I guess to Carly's point, like it does kind of go in the other direction of uh, people evaluating guys. And it is anecdotal. Um, but I thought that was pretty interesting that like maybe there is some like polarization aspect. Okay. <laughs> Chapter three, writing on the wall. Uh, so in this chapter, uh, Rudder talks a little bit about words and how they're changing in, uh, in the vocabulary of like pop culture speak. Uh, so I believe he looks at Twitter mostly, uh, and he looks at how the words that are most commonly used on Twitter are actually slightly more meaningful than the ones that are most commonly used in books from the Oxford English corpus. And basically says, I mean, his, his, uh, belief i guess is that this means we're using words with greater meaning in less space so we're like having more vivid writing because we're confined to 140 characters on twitter um and also people are getting more reactionary to the current year so he looks at the mentions of the current year every year in writing and how quickly they tail off over the coming years so he says like the number of times people mentioned the year 1900 uh stayed pretty constant over 100 years but the number of times people mentioned the year 1998, like, spiked in 98 and, like, kept uh, rapidly dropping over the next 10 to 15 years. So there's really a lot in this chapter uh, because then he moves on to message length and how that affects reply rate. Uh, it, I actually kind of felt like this was all over the place. He just wanted to talk <laughs> about language. So there, there's a lot going on. I thought the the message length versus... So he, he shows this graph which shows the number of characters that the final message had. And then on the other, on the x-axis, is the number of keystrokes, which is basically the number of types. So what we see in this graph is that there are some cases where the number of types is a lot smaller than the actual final message. And so this is showing that some people are copying and pasting like pre-written messages and kind of sending them on. Um, and basically, I think it's super interesting that he has this data to begin with. I had no idea that it, like, you know, ca would catch how many things you typed versus Tracking what it was actually strokes, sent yeah. out. And I'm sure that would be interesting to look at. Um, so what I think would be interesting is, because so, he kind of focuses on these people that are copying, pastages, copying and pasting messages to different people. Um, 
but also just looking at like um, a message o- like over time to see. Well, for instance, I think it'd be super interesting to see what percent of people just say, hey, like, under three characters or something, because that Mm -hmm. seems to be, like, a bigger trend as well. But then, if, like, having these longer messages does lead to a more successful conversation, or if, like, having these, like, copied messages, like, if that works, basically. Didn't he say that it did work? Yeah. He said that, like, your value, it's like you get more value of copy and pasting per effort or something because sure. the effort's so low and you get back like a ton of replies with just a pre-pasted message. Yeah. I thought that was pretty interesting. Too. Yeah. I just would have been interested to see like, cause, um, what I did in some research in college was just basically looking at the number of like characters that were sent per text and, basically evaluating if a conversation was symmetrical or not. So if, like, someone was sending, like, a long message, if they were receiving a long message back, or if it was, like, one person was messaging a lot and another person was giving short replies. Um, So there's, like, a lot more you can look into, and especially if you... Like, for instance, it'd be interesting to see if someone's, like, typing a really long message and then, like, backspacing and then, like, recrafting it, if, like, that means they're putting more effort into it and if that will like lead to a better result or if they're just wasting their time. I don't know. So he he did definitely address that um there's like a there's like a maximum or ra- rather there's an optimal amount of time to spend composing your first message. I remember he sh- he showed that and he showed that like if you if you spend only a couple seconds composing a first message, that's probably bad and if you spend like over 2 minutes or something composing the first message, that's probably bad too. So you're like overthinking it. But I thought there was so much in this chapter, I thought this could have been like five chapters. I, yeah, I would I love agree. to have heard so much more about the messages because there's, I have a bunch of questions, right? So the copy and paste thing makes total sense. I think if you've, if you've ever been on a dating app and had to message first, uh, especially from the guy's perspective, your chance of getting a date is so low, just in general, that it's like you have to send a bunch of messages. And I'm not sure that's like apparent to girls, but like you're... It would be insane if you only messaged, like, four people and spent ten minutes on each of their messages. Like, it would just never work. You'd never meet anybody because your chances are so low. And so, of course, it, like, leads itself to copy and paste. And people write, like, particular first messages that they like to use. And it's like, well, if this turns into a good conversation, then good. But otherwise, you know, I can't afford to, like, waste all this time to get no response. So that was totally unsurprising to me. But, yeah, I wanted more more notes on, like, should you still be spending a lot of time after it's begun like is that a good sign or a bad sign and like if somebody is typing more than the other person what does that mean kind of like what carly said i I just felt like there's so much to be analyzed in the text of conversations that i would i mean i I would have read anything about this i thought this was the best part probably that part about the message length. i thought there were like really interesting like reflections on like ad targeting and marketing where it's like the trend like or like back in the day like when you were doing advertising you would send out these like huge blanket messages and everything's just gotten like so personalized and he gives the example of like the like the guy who smokes who like went to like the like art museum and it just like appeared like so spontaneous and so like unique to this person but actually he just like mined the database and came up with like a very specific message for these 37 people or whatever it was, it and was like wild, just hit them right? with that, and I was, and it was like, yeah, you got a great response rate, and I was like, yeah, <laughs> like it was a very personalized message, um, and so that was it interesting. Couldn't be more that... personalized, yeah. Sorry, 
It couldn't be more personalized. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was it was like a whole blob of text that was like, "Oh, I see you used to smoke. Like, man, I had such a hard time quitting. Wow, it was rough. Also, I see you like art and like last time I was at the museum, whatever. And it was like, how could this ever be copy and pasted? But it was. This guy sent the same message yeah. to a bunch of different women. It's insane. <laughs> well, yeah, that's why I think most messages don't have that much effort, even if they're sent to thirty people. Like most messages are just like, "Hey," so <laughs> I would like to. I don't know. I thought that person put in more effort than the average person does, even if it was copied and pasted. Yeah. I tweeted about this chapter, and I thought it was hilarious, but judging by my Twitter response, it wasn't very funny. <laughs> I don't know. I was like, yes, I do copy and paste all of my Tinder messages. I just copy hey from the last conversation and paste it <laughs> the next one. <laughs> uh, That's funny. Anything else on this one? Not really. I did like that he uh, basically said that we're not actually using less interesting language as time goes on. Because um, I think there's like this ten- this tendency to look at things like the Declaration of Independence and you have this like huge survivorship bias and you're just like, wow, like people back then were like so much better at writing. And it's like, well, on average, probably not. And this has really yeah. kind of an interesting thing to include because it has like nothing to do with the rest of the book thus far. Um, but I, I enjoyed that. As, a, as an There's aside. A lot of, I mean, I actually talked about this in the last podcast, right? There's a lot of off-my-lawnism in the last generation that thinks that our generation just speaks in gibberish and has failed to communicate for the last 20 years. <laughs> and it's just, it's just incredibly annoying. And I really do think language has evolved in a lot of interesting ways. And we've gotten very efficient about conveying ideas that shouldn't require so much fluff. Yeah. And it's gotten a lot more compact to Twitter. And even Snapchat is interesting, right? Because you get like eight words on Snapchat unless you're one of those weird people that sends like whole paragraphs. So you, you got to be efficient. Next hashtags are going are to be in, like, the dictionary. It's gonna I, be, like, I hope hashtags, hashtags die. Words. I will say that. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, then we'll move on to the next one. Chapter four. Is this in the next part of the book? Have we changed parts? Uh, not yet. No? Okay. So, chapter four. Oh, I like this y- part. Good. you got to be the glue. <laughs> so he looks at graph theory uh, as applied to relationships. So he, he basically draws out individual people in a social network, I think Facebook, mm-hmm. as nodes. And then he connects them with lines, which you might call edges, um, to show how friendships are linked across many people, especially when two people in a relationship are the crux of that graph. And he basically says that you can use as a predictor for the strength of a marriage or a relationship how... Uh, focal this relationship is to a large group of friends. If your friends are connected without you, if basically each person in the couple is friends with a group of people that are all friends with each other, so they don't need the couple to connect them, then that actually is a predictor for your marriage being weaker, which is very interesting. But if you are the uniting factor uh, among all of your friend groups, then you are more likely to stay together. I, I found that, to be honest, actually a little bit counterintuitive. What did you guys think? I honestly didn't I just thought it was, like, rather interesting because it was, like, one, like, I've never... This was, like, I think one of the few things that I didn't have sort of an idea of, like, what the actual answer was or what... I don't know. Like, I've just never heard of this or anyone even answering or trying to figure out this question. Um, But I don't know. Maybe it's just, like, well... I have no idea why this would be true, but, like, I guess I'm more interested in knowing why rather than just him telling me. I kind of wish he would explain it or someone else would explain it. Well, I will say 
I did not understand the point of this chapter. I thought it had nothing to do with the rest of the book. I will say, social network theory is super interesting. I studied it in college. Ethan was actually part of a subject group. That's how I got my first smartphone. I didn't study. study. (laughs) I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say that. But, um... (laughs) 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 No. But, so basically, like, yeah, social network theory is super interesting. It's super interesting to see, like, what, how you meet friends, how networks are built, um, how they develop over time, how ideas like are shared across like networks. But this has nothing to do with OkCupid or online dating. You have no idea who the person is. These are complete strangers. You're just going off of like a profile picture and like some mutual interests. And like, yes, you'd hope that eventually you fall in love and build this great network together. But I didn't like I just thought he wanted to like show like these are some cool Facebook graphs that I put together it didn't wasn't based on the data it didn't really support any of his like arguments it didn't like it was just like a cool thing he wanted to talk about in my opinion and sorry (laughs) no I I would I would agree with that like on I mean to the subject itself I did have questions like if that was causal or correlated like the idea that like the people who are at the fulcrum like are this like they're more likely to stay together like is that because they're at the fulcrum or is the type of person who happens to be at the fulcrum more likely to stay together um that was interesting but i I agree with your point like a lot of this book kind of felt like he was basically going through like the different areas of data science and doing like hello world examples and this this was one of them where it was like like the last chapter it was like the hello world of like natural language processing and text analytics And then this one was the hello world of like graph theory. And it was like, okay, I wish you would have spent more time in the last chapter. And like, maybe we could have just skipped this. Like, it was nice, but it's like, this is like the EDA or exploratory data analysis of, of graph theory. And I didn't get like a ton out of this. It was like, okay, I never thought about that. And that's nice to know, but like now what? But that's like most of his book though. It's kind of like, he'll just state something (laughs) and then be like, and then just leave it there. Yeah. Yeah. So just just for our non-tech savvy listeners, yeah, yeah. Hello World is like the uh, <laughs> the prototypical example program you write. So if somebody teaches you a new programming language or you get exposed to a new technology, it's called a Hello World program because usually you write something very simple that just prints out Hello World. So what Phil's saying is like this is like like the most basic tutorial ever on each of these topics. Yes. Th- thank you for translating. <laughs> I, I think that's probably not a term I don't think that this chapter, though, I don't think it was any different. Like, I think all of his chapters are like Hello World. Yeah. Like, I think this was the worst, because this one was just, this really left it hanging. Yeah. There, uh, he, he jumped into Facebook. I think this is where he also exposes what I think is the number one weakness of the book, because I really like the book, clearly. But um, he, he shows that he really is just jumping around from, from like data source to data source and so he never goes really deep on one and here he's like oh like we also have facebook data and i would so much prefer to have had him go super deep on okcupid and like leave the facebook analysis for somebody else because i'm not here because he's like a master data scientist or book writer i'm here because he has access to data that nobody else has yeah like leave the leave the facebook analysis to somebody else well so i found this one of the least interesting chapters Uh, was that i was gonna say like was this also the chapter when he brought in um the interview profiles when he started going over that data as well? No. Uh, without the photos? That's the next yeah. one. Yeah. Okay. No, but he does bring in a lot of different data. Like, even the Twitter data and stuff. Like, 
I thought, yeah, I thought the most interesting part of the book was the OkCupid okay data, and wish he would just yeah. focused on that and done more of that. Yeah, and he he clearly had like more experience with that data too, and that like really came through. Is like either he had touched the analysis himself and he had done it, um, or he did the analysis. On yeah, it. or he was just more yeah. familiar with like the work that had been done, and it like definitely came through on the OkCupid okay chapters. And I'm guessing he probably had some kind of like page count that he had to hit, and this was an example of like, man, Christian's got to make the push to 300 pages. Better, Our buddy Christian. Better get some Facebook stuff in there. So one one thing too, actually, and I guess we'll probably get to this a bit in the in the next chapter, but it's important to keep in mind too that this book is was probably put together in like 2012, 2013, and so like I think a lot of this stuff today is much more commonplace than maybe it was then. Like I don't know how much like social network graphing was like. What, like a part of like the data science world at that point because that was really something that really only became like significant with like facebook and linkedin and those weren't around until like the mid to late 2000s um in any like capacity so it, it pro- may have been worth it at the time to include this just because like this might have been like mind-blowing in 2014 yeah maybe he was the first guy to do this i think we kicked off the study in 2011 so okay <laughs> oh, so you were ahead <laughs> <laughs> noted <laughs> yeah so it, I mean, it is funny that we bring up how uh, dated this is actually because the last thing i have in my notes for this chapter is that uh rudder actually puts in a link for you to go test your own relationship and he says like go put in two people's facebook profiles uh on this website that i have rigged up and it will figure out based on your common connections how likely you are to stay together and it'll give you a score that uh that website is actually down <laughs> so we're far enough removed from this that some of the external resources aren't even around anymore. And it's funny because, like, what did we say? It's been four years since it's been published. And that doesn't seem very long. But I do think a book about technology and data science, like, a lot has changed in four years. So maybe it shouldn't be such a big surprise. Okay, to the next chapter. Last chapter in part one. Um, it's called No Success Like Failure. And it begins with a description of this sort of holiday that OkCupid rigged up. Uh, it was 9 to 4 on a Tuesday, and it was called Love is Blind Day. Basically, they removed profile pictures from everyone's accounts, and so everybody was messaging blind on the site. New conversations totally plummeted while it was going. Um, he shows a chart of a typical Tuesday versus this particular Tuesday, and the messaging uh, number of messages exchanged each hour, and there were just so many fewer this time. Um, but in reports of dates that people actually went on, people reported uh, having basically the same amount of fun or enjoying their day just as much regardless of how attractive the person they met was which was very interesting but it turns out that just doesn't carry on to messaging online and so rudder sort of i think implies this case that if we were able to get over our own misgivings about dating people we don't find attractive it would work out i found that a little hard to believe but he does have what I think is, is reasonably compelling evidence. I mean, it's hard to get better evidence than this, I guess. But it is it is pretty interesting, and I thought this chapter made you think. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. I mean, there were, there were two thoughts to the, that I have with this. One of them is just on the on the content itself. Because like, it, it I mean, it's almost like he's trying to simulate like a romantic comedy or like um, something where it's, it, it just sounds like the plot of like a forgettable movie. Um, where it's like, okay, like these people are basically all going on blind dates and, and they find love because, uh, you know, they saw past like some kind of like physical detail 
and and everyone was happy and it was great but the truth is like i don't think that's the way that the world works and it's like i mean he, he mentioned something in here where there's initially this huge drop off and and talking and then people like kind of get over it or they get with the with this like holiday they've created and they start messaging at like more more normal rates and then as soon as they bring the pictures back like everything plummets and it's like for me it, w- it was like okay like i don't know like what what we really expected to see there um like maybe did you expect the people to like keep talking like I, I just don't like for me it was like okay i just don't know what what we would have expected other than what we saw well and it kind of goes back to what i was saying before that i think like it'd be interesting to do some kind of analysis on like the actual bios that people have or the conversations because to me it's obvious that it's not all based on attractiveness but he seems like surprised kind of <laughs> just like, um so i i didn't get a lot out of this chapter yeah, the, one, the other thing that this, like, really uh, got me to think about with regards to this book, and this comes back to uh, kind of it being published in 2014, is that, like, this is a very interesting, like, testing scenario, like, from a statistician standpoint. Um, but I actually don't think that you would be able to do something like this today. Um, like, given, given the, like, climate around, like, Facebook and the elections and all that stuff and, like, uh, GDPR and, like, locking down on data, like, I think this is kind of, it's kind of like a marketing stunt. And, like, I could just see today, like, in 2018, this, like, really backfiring, where people would be upset that, like, they would feel like they were being manipulated in some way. Because um, I, went, I went back and, like, read reviews of this book, like, from the time that it, that it came out in 2014, and it was basically kind of, like, the hints of uh, people being where they are today, where, like, they were talking about Facebook, like, changing people's feeds and, like, being able to alter their moods um, and things like that. And I actually totally forgot about that. Um, but this kind of reminded me of that, where it's like, I don't know that today you would be able to do something like this and get away with it as a web company of any scale. I think that they framed it really well, because I remember hearing about this about around when it happened, and they framed it as like, this is a, you know, like this is a chance to celebrate meeting people with no expectations. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I, I actually think that this particular thing was framed well, but I do think, especially when we wrap up the summary of the book, we should talk about how this book would have gotten just massacred by people if it came out today. Yeah. Like very, very personally invasive in some ways. And like a lot of, a lot of experiments that I think people would be uncomfortable with seeing done on a network where people don't expect to be like studied. Um, I'm sure we'll come back to that, but I do agree with some of what you're saying. And, and like, yeah, the Facebook changing the newsfeed outrage back in the day, like this is a way worse version of that in my opinion. Yeah. Cause this is like, I think, part of the reason that people got up in arms about Facebook is because in some sense it is like personal details, like it's your social network. And like, this is really personal. Um, like yeah. he was saying with some of the uh, same sex dating that like over 50% of the people had like basically said like, do not identify that I'm on here to anybody except people who have also identified as seeking same sex relationships. And it's like something as personal as this, like I don't think you could get away with it today. Okay, so part two, beginning with chapter six. This is this is the big one. I bet this is the chapter we talk about the most. Carly's ready. So chapter six begins with Rudder just like pulling away the curtain. It's it's very Wizard of Oz esque, and uh, and he's like, surprise! All my data has only been about white people. 
and none of this is included anybody else. And he's like, but don't worry, like, I had to do it this way. It would be way too confusing if I didn't. And, like, none of these trends would have shown up. And I had some questions right there, right? Like, oh, none of your trends showed up when you didn't have just white people? Like, I don't know. That seems a little weird, doesn't it? But uh, he's like, no, 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 it's okay. And now we're going we're gonna to make the best of it and just talk about everybody else real fast in one chapter. So a lot happens in this chapter. Um, he says race confounds other effects because it is such a big factor in everything. Um, and he then compares how races, uh, how people of certain races rate people of other races in people searching for opposite sex partners. And he says, he shows these charts and like there's a lot of this and he says basically like, well, not just says, but he shows the data that like, Asian women are rated very well by all ethnic groups, um, all racial groups, I should say. Um, and black women do relatively poorly across all racial groups of men. And then he does the same thing for men, and he says Asian men are rated poorly, and uh, Latino men do okay, white men do very well. And he shows all this, and he goes through, and he says, like, in general, races rate people of the same race most highly. But there's just, there's so much here. I have a lot in my notes, and I'm not going to go through all of it, because some of it is just, like, some stuff that I thought was interesting that I'll throw in. But I felt like this chapter was, like, man, there is a lot going on here. Yeah. Yeah, well, and also I first just wanted to say the actual name of the chapter, the confounding factor. I would like to hear your thoughts, but I really don't think he's using that term in the right way. So a confounding factor, like one good example would be like if you're trying to understand the relationship between like poverty and drug use, for instance, and you have like a sample of people and then you find, for instance, that gender is very much related to drug use like men tend to like be more likely to use drugs um and so then if you're looking at your data you'd say oh gender here's the confounding factor because it's obscuring the relationship between poverty and drug use however in this case there's no relationship between race and age like that's not a thing that would be linked so there's no reason why you would like have to control for it in fact it would be extremely interesting if you found different trends by race, which if he's just trying to understand dating trends at large, like that would be an extremely interesting thing to look at if like, you know, these like weird age difference trends only hold for white people, but not for other races, for instance, or not for like same sex couples or whatever. And I think he just basically, this is a case where I think he isn't using a statistical term correctly. This for me was actually the probably the biggest area um, where it's very clear that he does not have like the statistical training that he needs to like come to these conclusions. Um, I actually didn't even pick up on I didn't pay attention to the confounding factor part, um, but it was like when one of my favorite topics is like categorical data analysis, and when he puts up, <laughs> I, I know, I know, I knew that I was gonna get a rise out of Ethan. <laughs> um, but it's like very int- it's like a very interesting topic that comes up like more people more than people think it does and like he puts up these beautiful contingency tables and they're like it's like oh this is what people of this ethnicity prefer versus that ethnicity and whenever you see that like you see a contingency table and it's like okay well that's that's great that you have this um, but th- then it's like now what and the now what in this case is you need to conduct some tests to figure out if what you're seeing is actually like legitimate or if it's just chance. And I mean, some of the trends that he has are like very, like I'm sure there's something there, but like my intuition is that some of these numbers are just not meaningful. 
Yeah. Um, and, and this is when, like, I'm like, okay, you actually, like, now it's kind of hurting the book that you're not doing anything that's, like, statistically rigorous because you're presenting information and you're drawing conclusions from it. And I don't, I don't believe them necessarily. And I don't have the chart in front of me to, like, look at the specific ones. But, like, some of, some of those I'm sure were signal and some of those I'm sure were noise. Yeah. I was going to say, like, so much of his reports were just, like, you know, were just, um, just, like, one point. It was just, like, oh, well, men prefer women, or men, like, blacks prefer Latinas. It was, like, what, like, 2% or something. Yeah. Or he would just give, like, one number, and, yeah, it was, like, hard to decipher if it was, it's, like, well, what, you know, I guess, like, yeah, what is your margin of error, and, you know, like, how, how much did this vary? Um, he really didn't give much variance for anything. So I can give some, like, sociological background here on, like, what we actually see in, like, normal dating behavior. So, like, I, I just took some notes on, like, things that I've learned in the past. But basically, so when you look at interracial dating, um, Latinos and Asians are most likely to be in an interracial um, marriage. Um, blacks are generally or black people black couples are generally less likely to um date inter um or intermarry because um a lot of factors but there's like strong cultural and historical identities that like kind of bind people together and um so that's like kind of a larger scale trend that we that we see um in addition to that like another weird thing is that so when you look at specifically black men one in 30 black men um, are in prison um, and so there is like for a lot of black women there's kind of like a, a shortage of black men basically because um, black men tend to get lower levels of education have lower income and so black women kind of have to either like m marry down or like date interracially and because of those like pressures from society they often like don't um, intermarry and so like, I think these are things that have been, like, studied by a lot of people, and there is a lot of information there, and he doesn't, like, he just seems so surprised by these trends, and so, like, I, like, yeah, maybe some of it is, it's hard to decipher, you know, what is, like, based on, you know, cultural trends that we see, what is specific to his data, but I do think if he had done a little research, he could have, like, understood that this is the case, and so I took one class, it's called um, Marriage and the Family, and the very first day our professor said, I can predict who all of you are going to marry, and she said, look in the mirror, it's going to be someone the same race, same education level, same social class, um, and it's just like normal for people to date people who are very similar to themselves, and that's not surprising, um, and so like whether that's a good or a bad thing is a different question, but these are trends that we see in society, and so... Like, I don't know. I just thought he could have, like, picked up on much more interesting things in this chapter than, like, being like, oh, wow, we see these trends that I had no idea existed. And to your earlier point, he also needs to cut it by um, other things as well. Like, I think a cut by, uh, you had mentioned age would be interesting, and then also a cut by, like, income. Because um, I think if he overlaid, like, some income categories, these might look very, very different. Maybe that's why it's called the confounding factor. <laughs> Because he didn't give <laughs> Well, I, I kind of disagree with your earlier point about how 
um, he seems like very surprised by these things. I'll say as like somebody who's not like intimately familiar with sociology, I felt that his his like journey through the data was very similar to what mine was, and I felt that it was written quite well for somebody who doesn't come from a background of knowing all these things. And I also found it really interesting to see it from this perspective and say like we have we have very large scale data on people rating each other's attractiveness and like say what you will about that, but it seems pretty robust. Um, there's a bunch of ways that we could break it down differently, and I agree there might be confounding factors, but like this framing of it to me was was very interesting and it felt very tangible. I think as a reader who's not like intimately familiar with these subjects, it was a it was a very interesting walk through, regardless of whether it was like uh, a rigorous one. Well, so. I just think, for instance, another thing besides like race and age or whatever is um, looking at Tinder data. Um, women tend to only like respond to men or you know go talk to men that are a couple inches taller than them and that's like not necessarily a trend you see overall in society but it is something that specifically happens on dating apps because it's a very different situation if you're like you know evaluating all these like possible like people Versus if you just, like, meet someone at a bar and you're talking and then you stand up and you're like, oh, like, a little shorter, but, you know, I like that person or whatever. Um, and so I think it's kind of a different question of, like, if we're seeing all these trends manifested in, like, this online dating world, like, if it has a way of kind of becoming more extreme so that we already, like, know these are trends, but because you have the option to, like, filter and pick and, like, maybe in some case it even has an algorithm that like picks the top people it thinks you're going to want to date that that kind of makes these trends more extreme um than they are in society that makes sense it's a very interesting point i do think that it, it's very hard to, to extricate um what are the things that people do uh, in large dating pools like basically online dating versus how do people naturally date and, and interact with others and a lot of this book is about drawing the line between those two things and it's just very hard to separate i think okay anything else cool chapter seven so we have uh we have 14 chapters so i'm going to try to move us along a little bit faster now but i also think that these chapters i have fewer notes on them i, 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 think, I think there's like there's a little bit less going on of the greatest hits of the book i think there's like one left <laughs> yeah I, I agree okay chapter seven the beauty myth in apotheosis i don't know what apotheosis means. i don't either I, I didn't even bother to look it up, which was pretty lazy. I definitely should have. Isn't, <laughs> here isn't that like when a when a person becomes like a deity? Because there's like this portrait called like the apotheosis of George Washington, like at the Capitol building. The highest point in the development of something. So this yeah. is the highest point of the beauty myth. The glorification of a subject to the divine level. Nice. Here we go. The name of the chapter, the beauty myth in the glorification of a subject to the divine level. <laughs> yeah. So, um... He starts out the chapter by talking about how the top 10% of women by attractiveness get uh, just a ridiculous proportion of the, the total messages sent. I'm not sure he actually ever gives a number, but he shows a chart of it, and it leads you to believe that they get something around like 90% of total messages sent, which is wild in the top 10% of women. So this is like um, the Pareto principle that you hear a lot yeah. about in business, that like the top 20% of your work takes 80% of your time. This is like kind of a more extreme version of that. Uh, and then he he, uh, he does what I think is a little frustrating throughout the book, where he like dives into data sources outside of OkCupid, and he's like, oh, attractive women also get more interview requests and have more Facebook friends. 
um, and those effects aren't as noticeable with men. And I'm, I'm sure Carly will not be happy with this because I, I imagine this is well documented in, in the social sciences. Um, and the last thing he talks about is how when profile pics got bigger on OkCupid, uh, which was just a site design change that they made, the advantage for more attractive people got actually substantially more significant. So uh, he's basically at this point just talking about like the advantages and the meaningfulness of attractiveness on his site, which has been a theme of the book for sure. Yeah, I mean, I found this... Okay, so I actually found this part the most interesting. Um, oh, yeah? I I think maybe because it it just confirmed things that I feel like... You, something that's like you somewhat know, um, that there is sort of like that bias. But I guess I was somewhat surprised that that even like women, I guess, just being hired for like a temp job by, you know, I guess like who knows who's doing the hiring... But it was just, like, they said, like, exponentially just more, like, people were interested in people that, like, looked better just for women. And um, I don't know. I guess I would want to know, like, what – I mean, somewhat off topic. But it's, like, what site, when you put in your resume, like, do you have, like, a photo of yourself attached? I, I mean, that was weird, too. <laughs> I just yeah. thought, like, it was kind of weird. And I also thought, like – who went through them and like rated their attractiveness or like how did you even pair that data because if it was by name i feel like there could just be tons of people with like similar names and i doubt that people would allow you to like go off and look at their job interviews from their dating site so i don't know i thought it was interesting but yeah i couldn't quite figure out how he got to this data to make this conclusion even though the conclusion made sense i don't know yeah yeah, that's a good point. But what bothered me is that he kind of just, I don't know, like he equates number of messages as like a success. Yeah. It's like saying that attractive women have more. But I'm sure like they're just getting a ton of like random shitty messages. Like it doesn't necessarily need to be like good messages. And even with the interviews, it's, it's I mean, if we want to be specific, it's just number of interviews. It's not actually whether they got the job. And so I think... Like, just limiting it to, like, the dating site, like, I really think he needs to have more of, um, like, kind of an outcome variable, which, you know, you have to talk about how you would measure that if, like, you know, people exchanging their phone numbers means they went on a date or something. But he really needs to have a better way of measuring success, I guess, because to me, like, just number of messages doesn't mean, like, it means you get attention, but is that really, like, what you came on the dating site for? I guess, but I think it's interesting that, like, even in, like, getting a job, that you get more attention from, like, an employer because of your looks. I don't know. Yeah. I think that's weird. I think it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's, like, like when he had the chapter, I feel like it's this is pretty, like, well-documented. Um, I thought it was interesting that it doesn't go both ways, nearly to the extent that I thought it might have, um, where it's, like, this is much more impactful for women than for men. So I, I guess it makes sense. If you think about, like, men who are perceived as being very good-looking, typically when they get a lot of attention, it's because they're also very successful in some regard. And the two examples that came to my mind were, like, David Beckham and uh, that guy that Britney Spears was married to, um, where it's, like, Luke? these two... It doesn't help at all. Uh, the guy Britney Spears. Kevin, are you talking about the Federer? Kevin Federline. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Roger Federer. Roger Federer. <laughs> what not, a plot twist. He's not attractive. I, th I feel like I feel like at the time people thought that he was. Um, oh. I think he's kind of a bum, but like 
Like, I thought that was... That was actually kind of dumb, apparently. My, my dad's friend went to school with him. Um, oh, okay. shots fired on the podcast. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> this took, took an unexpected direction. Um, but it's like, I feel like, like David Beckham's, like, very popular, but he's also, like, like just loaded and, like, at the time was, like, really good at soccer, whereas, like, I mean, K-Fed or Kevin Federline... Uh, <laughs> K-Fed was his, was his tabloid name. Like, he, I mean, he didn't do anything. He was, like, a backup dancer. Um, and I think it's interesting because, like, it only plays out when the person's, like, also got something going for them, for guys at least. Uh, or it plays out more. I guess just not when it's time to get a job. Yeah. <laughs> I'm slightly bitter. Okay. Chapter 8. It's what's inside the counts. Uh, so in this chapter, Rudder takes, uh, man, I don't know. He takes kind of an odd angle on quantifying racism, I think, is the, the fastest way to summarize it. So he looks at search volume for the N-word, uh, and he shows that it was the highest in, in a period of like five or ten years on election night in 2008 uh, when Obama was elected. But then it dropped significantly on average queries per day since Obama's inauguration. So he talks about the ramifications of this and i honestly don't remember what his conclusion was but he goes on to talk about the dangers of um google autocomplete and i do think he has a point here he yeah. talks about how google autocomplete can uh can reinforce racial stereotypes because it's basically just echoing anything that it's seen before and so if what it sees before is people typing uh basically like racist search queries it will autocomplete them in the future when other people start the same thing. And especially when they're not typing the same, uh, they're not intending to get to the same end point, but they start with similar words, they'll still see as a pop-up the things that people in the past have Googled. So I don't know. I thought this chapter had some ups and downs. Um, I was pretty skeptical of his search data on the N-word as like some kind of, some kind of proxy, but I did think that his point on autocomplete was pretty interesting. Yeah, that, that this was that was actually the only thing that uh, I thought was interesting from this chapter, because um, this is this has come up for me where I, I've like learned about stereo. I don't remember the example, but I've definitely learned about stereotypes that I didn't know about from a Google like auto completing yeah. something, and there, I mean, it can be manipulated in funny ways. Like I just typed in "why does" and the fourth hit is "why does my cat lick me," um, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> Um, but I didn't really like, I, I feel like this was kind of like a miss, this chapter. I don't really know what I'm supposed to do with this. Um, it didn't, I don't think it was successful in quantifying racism. Is that it? Moving right along? Okay. Chapter nine called Days of Rage. Basically the chapter begins with a couple stories about people who have been mobbed and like publicly crucified basically on social networks for things that they've said. And the one that he focuses on the most is actually an OkCupid employee named Justine Sacco. Um, so she made a joke, and I, I didn't write it in my notes, but I'm, I don't know. Do any of you guys remember exactly? Oh, she said she was on a plane to Africa, and she said, um, going to Africa, luckily I won't get AIDS because I'm white. And basically, uh, Rudder makes the case that she was saying this as actually sort of a social commentary on how AIDS is... Um, I don't know what the word is. It, there isn't the appropriate amount of awareness for it because it's not primarily a white problem. It happens a lot in Africa. Um, but she was just lambasted by everybody on Twitter. And there was a, a hashtag, um, has Justine landed yet? As like people were 
you know, just speaking so harshly and waiting for her to open her Twitter app when she finally landed. And so it became really like this opportunity of just mob mentality to go after somebody. And it seems very possible. I mean, we'll never know. But it seems very possible she actually meant it in, in possibly a sort of positive way. But she never had a chance and she lost her job. And so this is just an example of like the opportunity of blind uh, rage, as he says in the chapter name to just really end poorly for people and, and to give people an opportunity to go after anybody on the internet. Yeah. I was going to say, I, I definitely like that he highlighted it. Um, I do feel like there's such, like, a big, like, mob mentality out there. Um, and he talks about it, like, the he equates it to, like, yeah, being stoned to death. How in, like, the olden days, everyone just used to throw stones at people because they didn't want to be seen as, like, the one that killed them. Um, and it's kind of like a group way to, I guess, like kill somebody. And um, like with the mob mentality, how it's like people didn't even know what, why they were so angry. They would just jump on and kind of keep like upping it and keep saying like worse and worse things. Um, and it's, I don't know, it was interesting to me to just sit, think like how did this one comment out of the millions that happened get just like so much attention and I know he started to go into it but I don't know I thought it was kind of just sad more than anything to know that this person's life was ruined for saying something but it does definitely make you think before posting something on the internet it's the anonymity of it I think is, is what he's drawing a comparison to the stoning to death example of because nobody feels the same guilt that they would in person if they like just harassed this person and in some way made them lose their job because when everybody piles on on Twitter, like, nobody feels the blame. And this really enables these kinds of um, just, like, crazy mobs um, to go wild on social networks. Yeah, there's, a, there's, like, an expression in, like, the newer media's, like, media, like, podcast, where they basically say, like, it's, it's easier than ever to gain an audience, but it's harder than ever to maintain it. Um, and I think that, that that's what this reminded me of is it's like, this is not the same thing as like building a media audience, obviously, but it's just like, yeah, I mean, you can just lose your audience or like lose everything so fast from like one thing that you say and everything is so visible today because of social media and other, other reasons that like, yeah, like one wrong thing and that can just totally undo everything. So it's kind of, yeah, kind of crazy. It's like us. I mean, it's so easy for us to have gained this wild following that we have. Yeah, it's, yeah. Just, it's just hard to maintain yeah. you know, all these millions it's... of people, all these listeners. <laughs> well, didn't they say in Twitter it's like 1% of the Twitter profiles have like, was it like 75% yeah. of yeah. the followers? I've heard that, yeah. It's totally unsurprising when you really think about it, but it is pretty wild. He actually gets into that later on, I believe. So we are on to part three, the final part. And the first chapter in part three is called Tall for an Asian. (laughs) And he pulls this quote out of bios, um, basically for uh, various racial groups. And tall for an Asian is the number one term that comes up in bios of Asian men on OkCupid. And this chapter is pretty long because it's full of lists. He loves lists. Lists of all the words that show up in white male bios, black male bios, Asian male bios, Asian female bios. I mean, he goes through all the racial and uh, gender group pairings. And he looks at all the words that come up. And, I mean, the first takeaway I had from this is basically people are so lame. (laughs) Like, all the words for all the groups are like, man, I would never want to be friends with this person. (laughs) 
So yeah. anyway, I, I have a bunch of words written down here, but I don't need to get into them. What did you guys think? Yeah, I was, I mean, I guess I kind of took it as like, okay, I mean, there's this data that, that they're sending through this dating app. Like, that's where he got this from, right? I th- yeah, I think it's the bios that everybody puts in. Mm-hmm. Oh, the bios. Yeah, I guess I'm kind of just like, what, what person sits there and puts like, Manny Petty or like Girls Night. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, I get Where that are for, these like, terrible people? <laughs> yeah, like I get that if you're like sending a text message to like your girlfriend or something. Some of them are so funny. For when he just breaks it down to men versus women and he, he so good out, uh, the race factor. Oh, it's so good. It's just like a conversation about the NBA, but really lame. It's like Good yeah. Bro, James Harden, Mark Sanchez, CP3 in 2K, 2K being the abbreviation for the NBA video game. Bynum, who was a guy who used to play in the NBA that's now retired. And it's just like, wow, these guys sound so lame, and I like the NBA, and I don't want to talk to them. Yeah. Well, the girls' ones is really funny, too, because it's all just about getting their hair and nails done. And um, I don't know. I, I did think that it – I did think it was kind of – was this the chapter two when he broke it out by race as well? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but can I say something really quick about the men versus women that actually isn't based on OkCupid data because he didn't actually oh, yeah? find any differences in the OkCupid data, which I thought was very interesting. Oh. They didn't find interesting differences, but then he was like, oh, let's look on Twitter, and now we see differences. And oh, it's like, that makes more that. sense. Yeah, it's like, well, obviously you're going to see differences on Twitter because people are like, making fun of themselves, but... Like, oh, <laughs> I, I didn't thought, catch that. Yeah, like I was confused as well because I was like, this doesn't seem like something you would like send someone like if you're trying to date. Yeah, them. let's talk about James Harden. Yeah, <laughs> so I that's why I thought it was interesting, but yeah, I guess I missed that too. That this was not okay, Cupid. Dead. Well, that's where I think he's being sneaky because he's he just like says that quickly. He's like, oh, there actually weren't any noticeable differences, but let's look at this Twitter data. Now we see all these cool differences. And this this like, explains a lot because I was like, I was like, yeah. what guy lacks? Like, you have so little game if you're putting <laughs> PS4 in your profile. Like, what are you doing? Yes. <laughs> like, yeah, like. Oh, that's so interesting! Wow. All the all the girls are gonna be smitten by your knowledge of your PlayStation. <laughs> oh man that's so interesting yeah yeah i guess this is the second time in the book then where it just kind of feels like he he turns the tables because i certainly felt that way when he revealed that it was all about white people at the beginning yeah i was gonna say i think it's interesting that the biggest differences happen between races but then when you actually look at how straight white and women and white men describe themselves it's actually pretty similar when it comes to like dating um yeah 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 that is very surprising but the number one term for a white guy was my blue eyes. <laughs> I was like, who who puts that in their bio? There's literally a picture of you right above your bio. Like, what are you doing? Well, how does that come up in a sentence in any context? Also, <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> Without just sounding like, like totally the worst. Yeah, like a Ni- yeah. Nicholas Sparks book. Like, yeah, sometimes I just look in the mirror at my blue eyes. Like, who says that? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, so weird. So, to be honest, though, I think this was, uh, for me, like, we're kind of walking off a precipice because this was the last interesting thing in the book. For sure. Um, this was the this was kind of the end of the content, and I think he he had a page target, and that, that starts to become obvious after this because this was, like, this was a good chapter. You didn't think that the breakout of, like, just the different races was kind of interesting? Like, in this chapter? Well, I think it was the next one, right? Um, no, it was this chapter. one. No, no this, the next this, one he yeah. talks about, well, specifically, 
um, gay and straight men and women okay. yeah. differences. Yeah. I thought that part was interesting, but then yeah. Well, let's just roll right into that one. Yeah, maybe we should move on. Yeah. Yeah. So, so chapter eleven is called "Ever Fallen in Love," um, and he starts with a, a quick anecdote about how MIT students were able to make an algorithm that could predict uh, what men on Facebook were gay based purely on their Facebook friends, and it was seventy-eight percent accurate. I have some questions right there, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I think anybody who knows statistics very rapidly would be like, well, couldn't you just predict that everyone is straight? Like, what percentage of people are known to be gay on Facebook? Like, you might be able to get a higher accuracy rate than that. Like, I wanted a different metric, basically. Oh, okay, yeah. But uh, he moves on from there, and um, and he says that Nate Silver, has, Nate Silver of 538 fame, my personal hero, <laughs> has developed scores for acceptance of same-sex relationships in every state. Um and I forget how he developed these. Uh, I'm not sure it's relevant, but there's a tight correlation between that score and the proportion of people identifying as gay in that state in a Gallup poll. So it's obviously, well, maybe I shouldn't say obviously, but it, it seems pretty unlikely that there's actually fewer gay people in those states. And in fact, we have evidence that supports that probably the number of gay people in every state is pretty much the same because about 5% of searches for porn in every state are for gay porn. Uh, and so that makes you think that probably this number of people in each state that are gay is probably about the same. And so the number identifying is really just people choosing not to identify, right? I guess that's a big assumption. Well, it's also like, I, I mean, it's a percentage basis, right? So I think he, he says like something along the lines of there's as many uh, gay individuals in New York City as there are in like North Dakota. And it's like perhaps on a... Like, I, I just find that very difficult to believe. Like, on the like, percentage base, right? Not, I mean, like, a numbers yeah, base. Yeah, I guess, yeah, I guess. No, but still, like, you'd think that more, like, gay yeah. people rather work, live in, like, New York or something. Yeah, like, I just, I just find <laughs> That's that... That's what I, I find, I agree it doesn't match up city to city, but, like, state by state, I bet it does. I don't know. It seemed odd, because you've got so many, like, uh, I guess, like, you know... Like, San Francisco is, like, known to be, like, a big... Or, like, places in Atlanta are known to just, like, draw people. So I guess, like, I would always think that, like, say if you're, like, gay and you live in the South and you're not accepted, you would probably move to a place, like, where you are accepted. Yeah. And so it would just draw bigger populations. I guess it would draw... It would draw bigger uh, out populations. I guess that's one maybe one of the points he's trying to make, is that, like, if you're not out, maybe, like... There's just tons of people in North Dakota where it's like very repressive. They haven't left. I have no idea if that's true. Um, he he calls that out. That yeah. is exactly what he's postulating. Okay. Yeah. That that makes a little bit more sense. But I was still I wasn't I wasn't totally sold that like searching uh, for homosexual pornography is necessarily a great proxy of whether or not yeah. somebody's gay. Because once if you're a guy that just likes watching two girls. Well, he actually he mentions, mentions that. that. <laughs> 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 I'm go down this rabbit hole. <laughs> well, I just wanted to say as well that like there's like I think there's like different ways. I think there's different trends in terms of how gay people use online dating versus straight people because, um, like going back to like the cities and stuff. You know, if you're living in New York or um, somewhere with a like a lot of gay bars or something where you can go out and meet people then it's a lot easier versus if you're in like a rural area and it's harder to meet someone from who's has the same sexual identity as you and so that these like i think what ends up happening is that like 
gay people use like these dating sites a lot more and tend to like also meet people a lot further away just because the pool is like smaller to begin with and so again it would be interesting to see if like if basically if they're using it a little differently for instance if like messages are sent more frequently if it's more reciprocal if there's just like different trends for gay versus straight people as well um, like specifically for online dating so I guess that's kind of like the opposite of like yeah, that, the, that maybe there would be more people using OkCupid in these rural areas. And speaking of those differences, he does do the, the list of words breakdown that he did in the last chapter. But this time he shows straight men, straight women, gay men, gay women, uh, all on the most common words in their bios. I didn't write anything down. I thought actually, if anything, it was like highly stereotypical, which is kind of what we found in the last chapter too, I yeah. guess. But um, I think you what happens... You thought it was stereotypical? When, I mean, I think I thought the first couple words at least were. I don't know. Do you have them in front of you? I don't, but I just remember he commented that um, for homosexuals, it was more, like, about them. No, it was, it was more about things. It was more about, like, television shows and, like, cultural references. No, that was for gay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. For female, it was more, like, about what they, like, about them and being more introspective. And for straight individuals, it was all... Like, the top ones for women was, I want to meet a man that knows. Or, like, it was all about, like, what they wish that, a, like, the guy that they met was like. And same as for men, they were always saying, well, I wish I met a girl that knew this or, like, did this. And um, I don't know. I kind of, I found, like, that point kind of interesting because, like, I couldn't figure out, like, why or, like, why that would be the case. Like, why would, um, like, I guess just, like, the words or, like, what they use would be so much more different and just being, like, you know, introspective. I don't know. Carla, do you have an idea on this? <laughs> no, no, but I did think that was interesting, too, that, like, it was a lot about, like, the type of, like, um, like lesbian they were or something, like, that there's different kinds and that they kind of had to, like, identify how they felt and... Um, yeah, versus I think the gay men did mention just more, like, things that they liked. And, yeah. Um, so I'm not sure why that is, but it's interesting. <laughs> I had forgotten about that. You're right. I did find that interesting in my first read-through. Anything else in this one? No. It was just, like, a point that I, like, just, like, noted as, like, huh. Like, it actually made me want to, like, read about it or, like, figure out why this was happening. Well, yeah. The other thing very quickly I don't know if this matters a lot but he does kind of hit on like bisexual women versus bisexual men and there are four more, four more bisexual women that is like very normal um, women tend to like have a more fluid sexuality than men but he kind of just like calls that out and it's like whoa cool thing I found <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah I also didn't know that um, that being bisexual was like so marginalized or that, especially for men, that it was, like, seen negatively um, if you consider yourself bisexual, which is why, like, they didn't have that as an option. Um, and the fact well, that... Well, they said it was seen negatively by gay men, right? And yeah. also straight. I think that's what he said. Um, yeah. yeah that, well, that would be more expected, right? But I was surprised it was seen negatively by gay men. So was I. And, I mean... It, and then he just went on saying that they, you know, that they made the option available to be bisexual and, like, message both groups. And he said that, like, typically what happened is, especially people got older, 
they stopped messaging both groups of people, like both sexes, and only started to message like one. So, like everyone kind of like, I don't know. I guess just chose if they were like who they wanted to be with, which I thought was kind of in, like, I don't know. That was something I guess I never thought about before. Yeah, I also thought that was interesting. Okay. Um, on to chapter 12 of 14. Almost done with this unbelievably long book. <laughs> okay. Probably spent, chapter 12. Probably spent more time talking about the book than it took to read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that took to write. Um, chapter 12 is called Know Your Place. It's really not a long book for anybody interested in reading it. And I, I would recommend you do read it, even though we've covered it in just absurd detail. Um, chapter 12. Know your place. So I have in my notes, books started to get less interesting here. <laughs> and maybe maybe that means like radically less interesting. Yeah. Because the last couple chapters I thought were interesting, but not as good as the rest. Um, I, I'm going to be honest. Maybe I need one of you guys to explain this. I had no idea what he was talking about here. He talked about how you could you could quantify the social epicenter of earthquakes based on like where the most tweets came from, yeah. and then like compare that to where the actual physical epicenter was. And I was like, well, who cares where the social epicenter is? Like, I don't even understand what that. What's the point of that, right? Like, what what's the use of that metric? You've just invented a really weird and not even very interesting metric. I thought. I, I didn't get it either. This was just his tour of data science. This is his hello world of of spatial <laughs> statistics. It's totally true. Yeah. Uh, he just, well, cause, yeah, he just had to get it in there. <laughs> yeah, then he goes on to be like, let me show you how states are different. Yeah. And he, he does a couple things, like how different states answer different survey questions. And the one I called out here in my notes is how often do you shower? So then he colors every state by the frequency of how much they shower. No, wait, which one was the lowest? I want to know. Well, the, north, the north was really low. That uh, makes sense. Yeah, well, because like, it's cold. It's like obvious, yeah. right? When you're cold, yeah. you really don't need a shower. That well, he much. even I mean, says that yeah. himself. Once He's like, well, the other week is fine. Yeah, it's like, duh. <laughs> I don't know. Wow. And then... And then he's like, this chapter has not been disjointed enough, so I'm going to close with a diagram of how subreddits are connected to each other by common users. And I he puts down, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what the name for this kind of chart is, but it's where you have a bunch of, uh, a bunch of shapes, basically. Um... And they're just, like, smashed up against each other, and each one has a label of, like, a subreddit, which is connected to others. What's that? Was it a dendrogram? I don't think it was a dendrogram. Right? Yeah. Isn't dendrogram, like, hierarchy? It's like a tree, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. This was just, like, things smashed together to show you how things, like, touch metaphorically. Like, who has common users on subreddits. If you don't know what a subreddit is, um, that's, like, a particular forum area of Reddit based on a topic. And he's like, look at, like, my subreddits because I'm a, I'm a guy and I'm a gamer or something. Like, unfortunately, they are very close to, like, these uh, male malcontents uh, and, and a couple other things. And it's like, well, I mean, okay, right? But these are obvious. Like, the kinds of people that are in these similar yeah. groups are obviously... I mean, it, it just didn't surprise me at all, and I just thought the representation was bad. I didn't like this chapter. Is that clear? I didn't like it. <laughs> I was going to say, it was hard for me to follow this chapter, and I kind of just, like, zoned out. It was like, what are we doing here? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Moving yeah. on to chapter 13. Chapter 13 called Our Brand Could Be Your Life. So, writer talks about how the idea of a personal brand has exploded in the last few years. Um, and he measures that by looking at the number of mentions of personal brand per million words in Google Books. 
Uh, and then he looks at the words that are most disproportionately used by people with a thousand or more Twitter followers. And a lot of the ones in the list are just like meaningless business jargon. And uh, surprisingly, the other words in the list are largely African-American slang, which is, I think, actually really interesting. So this, this chapter focuses on both those two points. Uh, and he, he calls out how there's a strong network in black Twitter um, of people following back, it's called. So if I follow you, you follow me. And so it builds these very large networks of people that have tons of followers. And so while we're seeing on one side, like, business doofuses tweeting nonsense, we're also seeing, like, kind of the popular people in black Twitter. And that's why the the uh, really popular words are so different. You can so easily segregate them. Then he, he moves on to talk about how you can buy followers, and politicians have bought followers, and Newt Gingrich was caught doing it. Uh, he was outed by a former staffer. <laughs> um, and then he talks about clout scores, which is like your influence based on your social network. And, you know, there's still a little bit more here, a little disjointed. Well, the uh, clout, clout went out of business, right? He was talking about that and how, like, some jobs would require a specific clout score. This was one of the things that I thought really showed the age. That I believe clout was... Maybe, maybe I'm totally wrong. I thought it... Oh, yeah, here's an article. Clout is shutting down. Yeah, its current status is closed on Wikipedia. So that was one example where, like, he basically talks about this thing, and I was like, I'm pretty sure that that no longer exists, and that was only four years ago. Yeah. Clout was pretty dumb, I remember. Yeah. I checked my clout score once. It was, like, 10. Not so but that's why you think it's dumb. <laughs> Imagine if it had been 90. <laughs> Um, he, he is right, though. I mean, that's one thing that, uh, at least in more technology-oriented occupations, there does seem to be some kind of expectation that, like, you don't... Like, a resume is, like, not going to do it. Like, there is, seems to be an expectation that you have, like, a personal website and, like, you're visible on certain uh, certain sites. And that's just kind of, like, pl- like table stakes at this point. Um, and so it is interesting that he's kind of mentioning it here where, like, it's it's kind of like micro-branding where you have to have, like, some kind of small presence at least just so that, like, you appear halfway normal. Yeah. Someone unfortunate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the last chapter, number 14, called Breadcrumbs. Uh, it really is just some, some breadcrumbs of, like, his thoughts and... I I suspect I'm going to get a lot of negative feedback from you guys about this, but I actually really enjoyed this chapter. Even though I thought the book was less interesting at this point, I did think that um, he nailed down a lot of issues that popped up as much bigger four years later. Especially, like, looking back on this, some of these things are obvious, but at the time, I think he was a little bit ahead of the curve on, like, how should we worry about the safety-privacy trade-off? Um, how should companies pay us or or in some way become responsible to us if they get to use our data and he starts the chapter by talking about a group from the uk that managed to use people's facebook likes to correctly predict homosexuality race gender political party and he's making the case that like if you know even a little bit about people online you really know a lot about them and this is like a huge invasion of privacy and how much should we be worried about this and then he sort of introspects and talks about um what it was like to write this book and and how uh like should you think well should he think about it as like a major privacy violation and like what's fair and what's unfair and ultimately he had to make some trade-offs and he believes that like the science was worth it but ultimately you have to think about that every time you do these deep dives so there, there was a lot in here and i i found him very thoughtful in this chapter more than i had in the past ones and like I said, I, I think some of this may seem obvious now, but I, I thought that he seems to have a really good grasp for 2014. 
of what's going to be a problem in three or four years. Yeah, I think I think there's like an interesting thing um, where it's like the thought about having companies pay for our data. Because um, I've thought about this a lot, and it's I think there is like kind of a like a contract that like takes place. Like when you use something like Facebook, or when you use something like uh, Instagram, which is also Facebook, but I mean they they do collect a lot of data on you, but you are getting a very good service totally for free. Um, and there, there is a kind of contract, right? Like, and that you're giving something up in exchange for use of that platform or use of that service. But I think the thing that really calls that into question for me is like, I don't think people realized until recently, like just how much they were giving up in exchange for that free service. And I think that's kind of like come to the, come to the forefront now but going back to something that we discussed a little bit earlier like i mean this book itself is like a manifestation of what he's talking about in that last chapter well yeah and i think that's the difference between like um like a scientific paper and this because there you need to get informed consent and that's why you have those sample size issues and everything and like here Obviously, he has access to all the data, but there is kind of a moral question of whether he can use it the way he is. Yeah, and I'm sure there was like something buried in like the 67 page like terms of service for OKCupid, where it's like, should we want to conduct a quasi scientific uh, research study? Uh, we can use your stuff, but like I'm fairly certain, like even though the data at this by the time that it gets to him, I'm sure it's been like anonymized and as presented, it's aggregated. Um, it's still like, did a typical member of OKCupid really think that's what they were getting into when they like paid for that service or signed up for that service? Probably not. Um, and it's like, yeah, I don't think he was going around like getting consent on this stuff. Yeah, it was it was all aggregated and, and anonymized when it got to him. He he talks about it a little bit in the the final chapter, yeah. the like epilogue thing. Um, and he also said that the only snippets that he used in there of messages there's one or two and it was actually someone that i forget how he came across it. i think someone solicited him like he actually didn't reach out to them because he never saw the message and someone like pointed out to him that he could look at this particular thing they had sent and use it as an example so i did think that was good but still i think it's still worth thinking about this could be troubling yeah very very prescient chapter it was for sure yeah i mean this year in particular it is and that's what i mean about being ahead of the curve i mean it could get more and more relevant every year so yeah it's possible probably probably will yeah yeah well if we're good with the summary we'll move on to a, a wrap-up of just what we liked and disliked about the book and a star rating out of well it won't be stars it'll just be a number out of 10 <laughs> it can be stars change my mind so well, what did everybody like about the book? Let's do let's do a quick roundtable and just like a couple points of, of what you liked best about it. Uh, Carly, you want to start us? Okay. Yeah, I mean, I'll say I liked um, the actual subject matter of the book. I think that specifically there aren't a lot of... Obviously, I think the intersection of like the social sciences and statistics is interesting, and I think that isn't really a well-known field to a lot of people, so having like a book written on it does kind of, um, especially if this was, like, an NPR book that, like, a lot of people read, it's, like, good that, I, I guess I think the subject matter itself is interesting, and, like, I think he brings up a lot of points that people w- wouldn't be aware of who do not study sociology or statistics. Uh, Corinne? 
Yeah, I think I kind of agree. I think that um, seeing how he's used, I think, just social media data to kind of um, reinforce just, I guess, uh, topics that might be popular in, like, sociology and stuff, um, I think is, like, really interesting. And I like I like the concept of it and just what he's done. Um, so I would say that's a positive. Um, and I think it kind of opens up thinking into how else you could either use social media data, um, I guess if it's not restricted in the future, to kind of, you know, look more into, um, you know, certain research ideas. Phil? Um, I, I mean, I thought, I thought it was like a pretty like uh, quick, fun read. Um, like, like Carly, I kind of did some of this stuff in college with like uh, family economics. So it wasn't like totally new, but I remember the, the initial forays into family economics for me were like pretty mind blowing um, just because I, I never like thought about this kind of stuff. Um, I, I think I think for the most interesting thing about it, and I've kind of mentioned that like the, the date that it was published, but like in other ways too, like I think it was just very interesting to revisit, revisit it now. Um, if for no other reason than that just how much uh, I believe data science has changed like in the last five years because for me like um, I would have started my career around the time this book was being put together and the kind of notion of data science that I remember from that time was actually more similar to this to this book where like people were doing things like um, that were like there's no business value for OkCupid in this book other than maybe like they're getting a cut of the sales from it and I think it was at that time, it was like very like exploratory and very fun. Like, what are all these things that we can like do with data um, just for the sake of doing it? And you actually had people um, like this Christian Rudder guy where it's like he has like a math background, um, but like his it wasn't like he was an analyst or a developer who like became a data scientist. Like he was like a in a band and then became an OkCupid co-founder. And the only reason he was leading analytics there was because he was a co-founder. And so for me, it's like today you wouldn't you wouldn't see somebody like that necessarily in that position, like maybe to a lesser extent. But I think the like data science career track has become a little bit more formalized uh, today versus where it was then. And so for me, it was just really interesting to like see a time capsule and like into what in my career was like the very early part of data science. Um, So the reason in the end, I like this book so much and I suspect I will have the highest rating of it, is this book made it interesting to look at data science and social science to regular people, I think. I mean, it it was very popular uh, when it came out, and it still is around. I mean, I found it on a clearance shelf at a bookstore near my house four years after it was published, and I've seen it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Clearance, but even so. it, it seems like it has stuck around. I've heard it reviewed many times. And ultimately, as much as I hate to admit it sometimes, like making important stuff interesting to regular people is really important. And sometimes that like trumps other things. And no one is going out there reading sociology papers, unfortunately. Like I would love yeah. if people did that, but they don't. And so framing this in a way that it's appealing to people is really important. And a lot of my, my positives about the book come from that. Um, the book just in general is like very pleasing and, and easy to approach. There's no jargon. Um, the author is the opposite of a scientific researcher, right? Like he's funny and he's, he's not just like regular funny. He's kind of like engaging and witty. 
and he makes some jokes about himself and about people like him and about people that he finds uh, as like typical people on these dating sites. Um, and having the book printed in two colors that I mentioned earlier makes it much more, um, much easier to like engage with the graphics because they actually pop out from the page. There's red in them. Uh, and it's also easy to distinguish two different things on the page. And uh, even like the physical copy of the book, and obviously like not everybody's is the same, but like I found my physical copy a very pleasing book to hold. It was like <laughs> very thick pages. It was nice. I mean, this like counts, right? This is mine. You guys didn't have it. Oh, <laughs> uh, mine, mine is cooler than that. But I did get mine on the clearance rack, so you know. But anyway, the book the book was funny and it was interesting and like for whatever its flaws, I think pulling people into this subject is a good thing. And it reminds me of Freakonomics in that way. I think Freakonomics is uh, sometimes simplistic and like overly narrative driven for anybody that's listened to Freakonomics. But Freakonomics is how I got into economics and got into like a lot of the things that I'm interested in now. And I listen back to it now and I'm like, this is sort of amateur. But if it provides an entryway, like that is important. So that's my, my pros. Let's go around and do, do dislikes. <laughs> um, okay, so I can start. I mean... This book was just very frustrating for me to read. Not even just given my background, but I, I I don't know. It was just like, I feel like the intro of the book was very, like, hyped up a lot of his findings. And then I found myself being a little underwhelmed by um, what it actually found. And thinking that with that data set that you could do so much more. And that was just a little disappointing to me personally. Cool. Corinne? Yeah, I'm in the same book. I kind of found it... Um... Like, I wish he would have asked different questions, maybe questions that weren't so obvious. Um, and just, I think, really, I think, I don't know, put that, yeah, that is set to answer more, I don't know, interesting questions or trying to find something out that maybe um, people really haven't explored. Um, and so, yeah, so I think for me, I just found myself hanging a lot, like, just at the end of it going okay well why did you stop there like you you kind of just I don't know I guess just confirmed um questions or thoughts that people have already had I guess why not go further and try and really explore the data um so yeah I think that was my biggest frustration with it yeah I would I would say like um like from a we've covered a lot of the stuff that I dislike, but I think from a book standpoint, it was a little it just lacked discipline. Um, so it was kind of disjointed and like all over the place, and it didn't really have like a consistent theme. Like it, it stuck to the subtitle of the book of like exploring who we are when we think no one is looking. Um, like it did a, did a good job of like pursuing that objective, but I think it would have been a lot more interesting for him to. Uh, stick to the data that he knew better, which was the OK Cupid data, because I think he could have explored that a lot. Uh, more closely and then also like I think he could have partnered with uh, maybe like taken a Freakonomics model and like partnered with somebody else like a statistician um, who could have actually helped him apply a little bit more rigor or a lot more rigor um, and go deeper on some of this stuff because it's like I got to a point in the book where like I just didn't believe some of the stuff that I was seeing because of some flaws that he had like upstream and for, for me, I know a typical reader is not going to see that, but for me, it, it really hurt the book. I agree. And I think even for a typical reader, having even an appendix of how you found this data, I think would have been helpful. 
so yeah i'll kind of divide my criticisms into like the narrative and the writing versus the science um so from from the perspective of just like a book um that i enjoy reading i thought it was a little all over the place as we alluded to before it kind of felt like he was jumping into new things just to show us new things when it it really wasn't nearly as rewarding as him sticking to the stuff he was truly an expert in which was the okcupid data um and i also felt like he could have been more concrete about like what does this mean for our lives he really liked to to hit generic like ah like this is how people are and like this is what makes people attractive and this is how attractive people uh, are more successful or something but like you know if, if you're going to write this whole book about an online dating site like tell me if i'm a person on that site like how do i get better at it or like how do i get better at having conversations with people i'm interested in dating or i am dating like these are things that that you are in a prime position to answer like very few other people have those answers and this book was really interesting and that only made it more clear that like you had a chance to answer these questions that i wish you had asked so those those were a little frustrating it's like at least give us a little bit of like how to teaser like like show us a little bit about what this means for our own lives um from a scientific perspective i do think that probably the, the single worst thing about the book was the the sort of curtain pulling um when all of a sudden we find out that like he's done the first third or half of the book on a small sub well, maybe not a small subset of people but a subset of people without telling us that and that has significant impacts on the results of what we've seen and i mean if you are going to do that i think you have to tell the reader up front if you're going to be taken seriously um and i also as as you guys i think have all said would like to have seen more methodology explanations um, an appendix or something online would be really good so with that um phil why why are you sitting in the dark because uh, my light switch is over there, and I have to like get up to change it. It's <laughs> very respectful. I know. To you, I, I, to I was I was kind of looking at the the images of us there, and I was like, "How are you guys like sitting in light rooms? Like, I'm like Carly's in a different time zone, but like, even in Corinth, like, <laughs> it's really not that dark. I'm still, I mean, I'm still going outside after this. So. But it what's kind of funny is we can still see you perfectly, Phil. <laughs> your face. Illuminated by the light of the computer yeah. in his natural state. <laughs> <laughs> or your tan maybe hasn't said in yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's only, it's only only been three months of summer. <laughs> Let's wrap this up with ratings out of ten for everybody. Oh, yeah. Starting with Carly. Um well I, I wanna give two ratings if that's okay. I'd say my personal rating would be like a three just in terms of like what <laughs> I liked or didn't like about the book Harsh. but I will say like I can't really I don't really know a lot about like what type of book is appealing to the general population like I already said like I think it is an interesting subject matter and it is good to get more people like interested in it so maybe if I was like an official book reviewer like that reviewed a lot of books like not just books that I like maybe like a seven okay Corinne yeah I think for me um like yeah I think for me it didn't really provide like a ton of value um beyond just like little things saying like oh that was cool so yeah I would maybe give it like a low score I guess a three sounds good that sounds like a good score um <laughs> but <laughs> I think I think the word this book I think would be actually like scored highly it would be like as in like an intro to i don't know like some like sociology class or as like a like intro book maybe i think because it gets people thinking of maybe what's possible and gets people talking 
and I think that's good, but um, it doesn't really provide any results. Yeah, I would. I would. I think like Carly, I'm probably in too deep um, to give it like maybe like as objective a rating as I should. Um, I would give it a four out of ten, um, and I didn't think it was like a bad book, but I think like even like statistical misgivings aside. Um, there was very little in this book that I think like did anything to fundamentally change the way that I see the world. And like for a book to get like a pretty high, I mean, even, even if it was like, um, uh, not that rigorous, like if there was something in here that I feel like I didn't either know or have like an intuition about ahead of time, I think that would have been like something massive. I think it would have gotten a higher rating, but like, I don't know how much of this book that I'm going to remember uh, 12 months from now. So, four. All right, well, unlike you guys, I'm in exactly the right amount of deep to enjoy this book. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, work in this, I work in the data science field, and uh, my hobbies are pretty heavily slanted towards the social sciences other than, like, tech stuff. So I, I found this book very enjoyable. Um, like I said, I love, I love seeing things that make... Uh, what can be pretty dull data analysis into an interesting exploration. And whatever the flaws, this book succeeded there. Um, I, I did already talk a little, bit, a little bit about the flaws that I saw, and I would give it a 7 out of 10, given all that. Um, it's not going to make the favorites shelf, but it is a book that I think I will, I will think about pretty regularly as, like, uh, particularly, like, meeting people uh, in dating contexts. I do think that this book is something that, that will pop back into my head. So that, that has some value. Really? So what tips has it given you? Well, I don't think it's given me any tips. That's, that's one of the problems. But it, I know. So that's what I'm saying. Like, how has it improved you? I'm not sure it has, which is part of why it loses the points. Okay. Um, but I, I just think it, it was thought-provoking, and my, my future thoughts will feel like they had been provoked by this book. Well, um, yeah, I, for people that made it to the end, I want to thank you for listening. <laughs> uh, we got a little carried away, but it was it was fun. And uh, at this point, I would like to pitch the episode by saying you basically don't need to read a book anymore <laughs> because we've hit literally everything. <laughs> so, you know, it took two hours to listen to this episode, but in the future, like, you just saved, I don't know, six hours reading the book. So net gain, I would say. Yeah. So thanks, everyone, for listening. I'll give everybody a chance to say goodbye. Bye. 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 <laughs> And, uh, and that's all we got for you. Um, and check out the website. We have a couple new articles, and we're cranking out the podcasts now. So thanks for listening.